and welcome to SMW The Pulse. My name's Amy Jack, um, I'm a partner in National Tax and I'm joined by two co-hosts, Liz Hudson who works with our private client tax teams. Hello. And Gina Hetherington who works with our business tax teams. Hello. And this is our talking tax segment where we help you stay up to date with changes in the world of tax. But before we dive in, I thought I'd explain a bit about what we plan to cover. In each Talking Tax segment, there'll be a handful of topics that we discuss in a bit more detail. So these won't always be breaking tax news, but there'll be areas that people or businesses are thinking about now. And in this episode, we're talking about the changes to Entrepreneurs' Relief, the changes to Private Residence Relief, and the Office of Tax Simplifications report on Inheritance Tax. We will also have a Tax Roundup section, where we'll provide an overview of the recent changes in the world of tax. And this time, we're covering the new reporting requirement known as DAC 6, the VAT domestic reverse charge, and the Hargreaves Lansdowne tax case. So as you may have gathered already, we are covering a wide range of tax topics. And so as well as drawing on the significant knowledge and expertise of Liz and Gina, we will also have special guests join the discussion on particular subjects. And I am delighted that today we are joined by Chris Springett, a partner in our private client tax practice, who has a huge amount of experience advising on UK residential property and whose views on the changes to private residence relief I'm really interested to hear. Thanks Amy. Hi. Um, so let's start with private residence relief. If you're not very familiar with it, private residence relief is a relief from capital gains tax for individuals on the disposal of their home. And fairly recently, HMRC published its consultation response and also released draft legislation to change very specific aspects of the rules. Liz, if we could start with you please, what are the changes we're expecting to see? Thanks Amy. Um, so in terms of what the changes are, there are two which I think will have the widest impact and that we should focus on today. So the first is the reduction in what we call the final period exemption and that's going to go down from 18 months to 9 months. That's um, where a property has been occupied as the owner's main residence, the final 18, soon to be nine months, of their period of ownership will always qualify for private residence relief and that's regardless of the property's use at that time. So this is the exemption that might help, for example, if you're selling your main residence, you've always lived there, perhaps you've already bought a new home but you've not yet managed to sell your house. It means that if you sell that first property within a specific amount of time after moving out, what we call the final period exemption, then there should be no exposure to CGT. Um, and just to give you a little bit of history, that final period exemption was 36 months all the way from March 1991 until April 2014. It's been 18 months since then and this further reduction to nine months shows a real reduction in the relief over quite a short period. Yeah, it does. And um... Why has it changed so much? Is there a particular abuse of the rules that's been targeted? Well, I think the concern is that the longer the exemption period, the more private residence relief can accrue on two dwellings simultaneously, so on the unsold old one and a new one. Um, but many homeowners aren't keeping their properties deliberately for tax planning purposes to try and sort of double up on the relief. They just can't find a buyer willing to pay an acceptable price. Okay. And you mentioned a second important change. Yeah, so the second change that I wanted to mention is to lettings relief. Lettings relief can reduce the CGT payable on the sale of a property, which was at some point the taxpayer's main residence and which has also been less as residential accommodation. Um, the relief available is at most a £40,000 reduction 
in the taxable gain arising on sale, although it, it may be less, but it, it is a valuable relief. Arguably, um, lettings relief has always been somewhat generous. There's no equivalence for sort of pure buy-to-let properties. But under the new rules, what we're going to see is that you'll need to be in shared occupancy to benefit from lettings relief. So you need to be living with the tenant. And private residence relief has never been lost simply because you have a lodger. So I can't imagine lettings relief continuing to be available in that many circumstances going forward. Okay, so if you have just one lodger, you could have full private residence relief. And if you live in shared occupancy, you could get lettings relief to reduce the gain. So the definitions of those terms is quite important. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it is, it is a bit confusing. Just trying to think about the main situation where perhaps lettings relief may continue to apply. It's probably uh, either where you have more than one lodger or also possibly where there's sort of a specific area of the house that the tenant is allowed to use and they don't have access to sort of other general common areas. And HMRC take the view that private residence relief should be restricted in, in those specific circumstances. So you'd still be in shared occupancy with the tenant though, so potentially could still benefit from lettings relief. And I think it's also worth pointing out that this change applies from the 6th of April 2020, but there are no transitional rules. So it will impact taxpayers who let out their property before the rules change, um, but sell their property afterwards. Yeah, that's right. So periods that would have benefited from lettings relief before 6th of April 2020 under the old rules, they won't be protected. As you say, there's no transitional rules. And the same applies for the reduction in the final period exemption. So um, anyone who's currently able to benefit from lettings relief or who is thinking of selling or transferring a property just needs to make sure they understand the new rules um, and the impact on their tax position if they sell before or after 6th of April 2020. Yes, um, and can we just mention the further changes being introduced from April next year, so the changes to do with um, reporting property sales? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point and what's really important to remember and I think has been much less well publicised is that not only are we seeing changes to private residence relief that we just discussed, which may mean that um, individuals are paying more tax on a property sale, but there are also going to be changes to the reporting deadline for sales of some residential property by UK residents. So very broadly, where there's a, a taxable gain on sale, although the rules are obviously more complicated than that. So from 6th of April 2020, reporting can be required within 30 days of completion and tax payable at that same time. And that's a significant change to the current system. In some cases, um, it will be almost 21 months earlier than it used to be. And of course, April isn't really that far away. Um, Chris, what are individuals affected by these rules most concerned about and what, what are they doing now to prepare for the changes? Uh, well, the principal private residence relief changes are likely to have a major impact on landlords, uh, particularly those letting their, final uh, their former homes. Uh, as you mentioned, Amy, there's no transitional rules that protect the lettings relief that might have accrued uh, prior to 5th of April 2020. And as such, accidental landlords, uh, i.e. those who've been unable to sell their former home uh, when moving up the property ladder, should really give some thought now as to whether selling their property for perhaps a little less in terms of proceeds, might, but before April 20, might actually produce a better net of tax position uh, than retaining and, and selling when the relief has changed. Uh, on the reporting deadlines, I think the key really is awareness. Um, as you've mentioned, this is a big change which will dramatically reduce the period in which people have to calculate the capital gains tax that's payable. 
Um, although it's only a payment on account, people could still see a big cash flow disadvantage if they're unable to locate details of allowable costs, uh, etc. in the short time frame they have uh, to complete the calculation. As property tends to be held over a longer term, records are not always readily available, uh, so this could be a real admin issue for some. Yeah, um, and I know private residence relief is an area that's been known to produce um, unfair results, and these changes are quite specific. Um, I know some people are disappointed that the consultation wasn't used to reform the area more widely. Um, do you think there'll be further changes to come? Well, the consultation feels relatively complete from a government and HMRC perspective. It's dealt with some of the key areas, allowed them to refocus the relief slightly, clear up some uncertainty that was floating about. Um, as such, I think it's unlikely that they'll look at some of the components in the short term. That being said, the consultation document does specifically highlight the importance of private residence relief and the government's commitment to keeping people's homes out of the scope of CGT. Uh, so that's clearly good to hear and gives homeowners some confidence that the major changes are, are equally unlikely. And I also agree with your comment, Amy, that it is definitely an area that can still produce unfair results. I mean, just to give an example, and based on what we've just been talking about, in a falling market, for example, you can still face a capital gains tax bill where the amount of time between moving out and selling exceeds this final period exemption, even though the property has fallen in value since you've moved out. And that's because the relief's calculated on a time apportionment basis rather than, say, a market value basis. But as Chris says, I think the reforms probably addressed what HMRC and the government saw as the main issue. So I'm not sure we'll see any further reform anytime soon. Thanks, Liz. Um, and moving on now to our next topic, but still on the theme of capital gains tax. We've also seen a lot of focus on entrepreneurs' relief. And entrepreneurs' relief reduces the rate of capital gains tax to 10% on the disposal of business assets or shares in a trading company. And naturally, as, as you might expect, there are loads of conditions that must be met to get this relief. But there have been two recent changes. Um, firstly, there's stricter eligibility rules, means you know, it's trickier to meet the various conditions. And the second is new guidance on the meaning of ordinary share capital. So there's no doubt that certain shareholders that were eligible for this relief before the changes now won't be. And certain types of employee share arrangements are also now much less likely to qualify. Jean has been working with our business tax teams to understand the impact of these changes. Gina, can you explain a bit more about them, please? Thanks, Amy. The first change was to extend the period over which the qualifying conditions must be satisfied from one to two years. And this applies for disposals after 6th of April 2019. Uh, the second change relates to the economic interest held in the company. Previously, to qualify for entrepreneurs' relief on the disposal of shares in a trading company, an individual must have owned at least 5% of the ordinary share capital and be able to exercise at least 5% of the votes. Two additional economic interest conditions now apply for disposals after 29th of October 2018, and one of these must be satisfied. But both of these new economic measures look to beneficial entitlement. So in addition to the 5% holding of ordinary shares and voting rights, an, an individual must be beneficially entitled to at least 5% of the profits available for distribution to equity holders and assets available on a winding up, or instead at least 5% of the proceeds on the disposal of or hypothetical disposal of the whole of the ordinary share capital of the company, 
and this is calculated based on the market value of the company at disposal. But the second of these proceeds tests was added at quite a late stage, um, and without it, the changes were thought to deny relief beyond which the policy was directed. For example, there was ambiguity over the meaning of entitled, where there are multiple classes of shares. So this is where you have the same rights to dividends, but directors have discretion over um, which class of shares to pay a dividend. And there was also concerns over the use of the definition of equity holder. This is a much wider definition than shareholder. And so it can bring in things like non-commercial loans. So the addition of the proceeds test was very welcome and should simplify claims in many cases. Thanks, Gina. Um, I think it's also worth drawing out some of the complications with these rules. Um, for example, particular care should be taken over shares described as preference shares. There was a recent tax case where ordinary share capital was found to include a specific type of preference share, um, in this case one that had a cumulative dividend. And the entrepreneur's relief conditions are all about ordinary share capital. So I think there's a practical concern that if preference shares are treated as ordinary shares, when looking at these various 5% tests, it may dilute other shareholders below the 5% limit. Yes, that's right, Amy. And uh, minority shareholders may also be diluted where there are external investors who have preferential rights on exit. And this is quite common with private equity-backed companies. Uh, another complication um, which may arise is that certain types of employee arrangements, such as growth shares or ratchets, are now less likely to qualify for entrepreneurs' relief. These types of shares are likely to have performance-related features which vary the rights or values of the shares over time, according to certain agreed targets. But entitlements at the discretion of senior management, or with inside agreements, or if they're based on future financial hurdles being met, can't always be taken into account in calculating beneficial entitlement. Uh, and a similar issue could apply where you have rights and restrictions in shareholders' agreements. Um, Sometimes these can be brought into the test, but not always. Um, so this would all suggest then that people or businesses might look to reevaluate their debt or ownership structures, or the way they incentivise employees maybe. Um, Chris or Gina, I mean, what should businesses or shareholders be doing about these changes now? Well, for majority shareholders, the amendments may in practice have little effect. They'll usually hold their shares for longer than the extended two-year um, qualifying period. And the dilution points we've just been talking about may not have much, have much impact. But for some minority shareholders, this could have a very significant effect. So it's really important for shareholders and businesses to review the ownership and debt structures and understand the impact on their tax position. This is particularly in the case where you have preference shares, multiple classes of shares, preferential rights on exit, or employee shares with future financial hurdles. And another thing I think uh, it's important to note is we're also seeing increasing inquiries by HMRC into entrepreneurs' relief claims. Significant amounts of information has been requested to justify the claim. I think that's right, Gina. As with private residence relief, it appears the government are committed to, to this relief and clearly understand its importance. Uh, however, given the value of the relief, they continue to ensure that the relief is not abused uh, by tightening the definition of, of what qualifies uh, and as such entrepreneurs need to understand uh, the complexity of this relief uh, particularly given the two-year holding period that now exists uh, means that any corrective measures that need to be taken 
will have to be done so well in advance of any exit. So in conclusion, I think our view is that these changes will reduce the number of shareholders that are entitled to claim entrepreneurs' relief. Um, they'll also make it more complicated to figure out whether or not the relief is available. So it's certainly something to look into further if it might impact you. And the last topic that we'll be discussing in detail is the report from the Office of Tax Simplification on Inheritance Tax. So this report suggests amendments to the existing IHT framework and it looks at lifetime gifting, agricultural and business property relief and the interaction with capital gains tax. But it doesn't go that one step further and look at policy issues such as replacing it altogether with a gift tax. Um, Liz, can you tell us some more about what the recommendations are, please? Uh, I can indeed. Um, I think that firstly, we need to remember that they are just recommendations. We don't know whether they'll be taken up by the current or a future government um, at any point in time. But I think what they do do is they highlight the fact that IHT is in, is in need of reform. And we have seen that people have naturally been very interested in what the report suggests. Um, I don't think we'll have time to go through all the proposals in, in detail now, or we'll be here all day, but we'll probably just try and highlight a few. So, lifetime gifting to start with? Yeah, that sounds like a good place to start. So, at the moment, we have various exemptions to ensure that IHT doesn't become payable on some types of lifetime gifts. So, there's a £3,000 annual exemption, there's various exemptions uh, for gifts on marriage, and there's also a regular gifts out of income exemption. And what the OTS has recommended is looking at consolidating the annual and marriage gift exemptions and potentially also the regular gifts out of income exemption. Separately, there's also a small gifts exemption. And what that does is it allows you to make gifts of up to £250 a year to as many individuals as you want. And the proposal there is to keep the uh, exemption separate, but just to review its level. Okay. And do we think that this is going to be a benefit to taxpayers overall? Well, I think that the consolidation of exemptions sounds fairly sensible. You know, there's a vast array of different rules and that can be very confusing. Keeping the £250 exemption separate is also useful. That means that you don't have to keep sort of records of, of numerous small gifts, birthday presents, Christmas presents, etc. Um, I think the people that will be most affected by this change if, if, it, was, um, if it went through was that um, some individuals use the regular gifts out of income exemption to exempt quite significant gifts every year. And so putting a cap on this could have quite a big impact for those people. Yeah, um, also currently, um, gifts made more than seven years before death are exempt from inheritance tax. There was also a recommendation to reduce this to five years and to scrap the taper relief rules that, that are quite complicated that come with it. Yeah, so that's right. The OTS found as part of their, their research that the latter part of the seven year period requires quite um, a large amount of record keeping, but actually just raises very little tax. And they also heard that executors find it really quite hard to obtain bank statements going back further than six years. So I think the proposals sound sensible. Um, scrapping taper relief is certainly a, simpl a simplification. Mm. And if we move to some of the other proposals, can you tell us a bit about the interaction with capital gains tax? Yeah, so this is, this is one of the quite big changes proposed, and if it comes in, it might have quite a large impact for some people. So at the moment, there's a CGT uplift when assets are inherited on death. And what that means is that assets can be sold shortly after death by the person inheriting that asset without any CGT being due, because they'll have inherited it at its market value at that time. 
So if that asset's also exempted or relieved from IHT, so for example, if business property relief or a spouse exemption applies, what that means is that asset can pass on death um, and be sold straight away, realising realizing cash with no tax payable at all. And what the OTS think is that this CGT uplift on death discourages the passing of assets in lifetime to the next generation. So what it recommends is removing the CGT uplift in any cases where there's any relief or exemption from IHT and instead replacing it with a form of holdover relief. So the person receiving the asset would instead just be treated as receiving it at its historic base cost instead of at market value. Obviously, I mean, this is quite a major reform. What it would do is level the playing field somewhat between lifetime giving and, and death transfers. I think actually the suggestion's quite clever as the assets in question, they can still pass without the payment of tax, provided that the asset's not sold. And that's in line with sort of the general you know, purposes of agricultural property relief and business property relief. The idea is it get, can pass down a generation without a forced sale with the idea that they, they retain that property. Um, on the other hand, the potential amount of CGT eventually collected would very possibly increase. So um, while this idea is not exactly a simplification, I think it might prove quite an attractive idea to the government. Mm. And just picking up on uh, business property relief in particular, and I know the report looked at this area separately, it's currently possible to get business property relief where you've got both trading and investment activities provided that the investment activity is not the main part, so very basically it's a 50% test. And the, the Office of Tax Simplification has recommended reviewing this with the idea that the level of trading should be aligned with capital gains tax, which you know, potentially means increasing the proportion that needs to be classed as trading. Yeah, that's right. So the level of trading required for the business property relief test, as you say, it's lower than in, in such tests within the CGT rules, for example, um, within entrepreneurs relief that you and Gina have just been talking about. Um, broadly, it's a 50% trading test, as you said, for BPR, but it's 80% trading test elsewhere. So the proposal is to consider whether it's appropriate for, for the test for BPR to continue to be set at that lower level. And um, any changes could have quite a significant effect on many estates if that if that level is increased. So um, anyone who would be affected should this change be introduced should probably think about reviewing their IHT position. I don't think we've probably got time to go through any more of the proposals, but just just a final point was I think it was what was disappointing is that there were no recommendations made in respect of the residence nil rate band, which I think is surely an area in need of simplification. Mm. Yes, and anyone that's had to work through the rules and downsizing additions would definitely agree with that. Um, given these proposals may not be enacted, are we seeing anyone actually doing anything differently at this stage? Um, well, I don't think people are doing anything different as such, Amy. Um, it is leading to people giving some thought to their estates and how and when they may consider passing assets to future generations. Uh, it was mentioned about the, the seven years reducing to five. Um, but uh, as we don't know when, if at all, this might come in, people could run the risk of actually increasing the amount of time that they need to, to pass out assets out of the generation if they do delay making gifts. Um, in general, it does feel that inheritance tax legislation uh, will be an area of focus for whatever colour of government that we might have in the future. Uh, as such, people should consider taking action now while they have some certainty over the tax legislation. Uh, and I think that's the key message that, that is coming through uh, as, as we go forward. Thanks, Chris. 
Um, and now on to our tax roundup for this episode. I have to say that there hasn't been a lot over the past few weeks, so we're, we're only covering three items. The first of which is the VAT domestic reverse charge. Well, this was due to start on 1st of October, but it's now been delayed for one year to October 2020. The domestic reverse charge is a major change to the way VAT is collected in the building and construction industry. The aim of the new rules is to combat fraud in the construction chain by removing the payment and recovery of that through the supply chain via a reverse charge. So what it does, it effectively shifts the responsibility for paying VAT along the supply chain to the main contractors or end user. The delay will allow businesses more time to prepare for the impact of the new rules on cash flow and VAT reporting. But in the meantime, in the absence of the reverse charge, it is important for customers in the supply chain to carry out due diligence on their suppliers, as HMRC will not refund VAT linked to fraudulent VAT evasion. Next, we have DAC 6. Earlier this summer, HMRC published draft regulations to implement a new reporting requirement, which is known as DAC 6. It's designed to tackle cross-border tax avoidance, but could end up being much wider. The new rules require reporting of certain cross-border arrangements and the rules work by capturing things that fall within particular hallmarks and it can include cases where there's no tax motivation. We are at a funny stage with these rules because they're still in draft but we know that the first reports, which will be due next summer, need to cover arrangements dating back to the 25th of June 2018. So for many, it's a case of introducing procedures now to capture information that will be reported but without knowing with real certainty what type of arrangements will be caught and how the reporting will work. And finally, we recently saw the upper tribunal decision in the Hargreaves-Lansdowne case, which considered whether Hargreaves-Lansdowne needed to deduct 20% tax from loyalty payments it made to investors, and the upper tribunal found that it did. Uh, the background is that Hargreaves-Lansdowne provide an investment platform through which investors can access investment products and loyalty bonuses were paid by Hargreaves-Lansdowne to investors who use the platform and met a minimum holding period. And what they did is claim they were effectively a discount against ongoing management charges. And the upper tribunal found that actually they rewarded customers for remaining with the fund and so instead represented a pure income profit and as a result 20% tax did need to be deducted. Hargreaves Lansdowne have been deducting tax while they were waiting for the case to be decided so there should be no tax impact now although investors will not get the tax refund which they may have been entitled to if Hargreaves Lansdowne had won the case. And of course, other platforms which offer discounts to investors through rebates will also be disappointed by the results of the case, which it has been reported that Hargreaves Lansdowne is not going to appeal any further. Thanks, Liz. That brings us to the end of our tax roundup and concludes our episode today. To hear future episodes, don't forget to subscribe to SW The Pulse if you haven't already. And please rate and review us in the App Store. Thank you to our very special guest, Chris Springett, and my excellent co hosts, Gina and Liz. And most importantly, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you found it interesting. This SW The Pulse podcast is of general nature and is not a substitute for professional advice. 
No responsibility can be accepted for the consequences of any action taken or refrained from as a result of what is said. The views expressed are not necessarily those of the presenter or of Smith & Williamson or any of its affiliates. No reproduction of this podcast may be made in whole or in part for professional or recreational purposes. No action should be taken based on this podcast and we accept no liability if we change your views on any of the subjects mentioned.